0: speaker of the day, the Civil War comes to a close, and U.S. grant breaks through at Petersburg. Dr. Richard Summers describes the activity and strategy at Petersburg, a nine-month battle that culminated in the final surrender at Appomattox on April 9, 1865. Dick Summers comes to us with a very rich experience as a Civil War historian and as a military historian. He earned his PhD at Rice University. He holds a prestigious position as chief archivist and historian at the U.S. Military Institute in Carlisle Barracks. No doubt you've read his writings in the Civil War times. He's on the advisory board of the papers of Jefferson Davis. He's been very active in roundtable affairs in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. He's known to most of us as the author of the major work, Richmond Redeemed Siege of Pe- Petersburg. It's a privilege for me to introduce Dr. Summers.
1: It would not be right to end a symposium on General Grant dedicated to General Grant with an eloquent Expression of blasphemy. (laughs) So allow the final word to someone who proudly acknowledges himself as a true believer. I'd like to share a few thoughts on Grant at Petersburg. Petersburg is a major city of the Confederacy. Next to Norfolk, which of course had been lost in May of 1862, it was the foremost city of Southside, Virginia. It was the site of a major confederate lead work, but most of all, it was important as the communication center of the Confederate capital to the Northeast, to the Southeast, to the blockade runner ports to the South, to the Great Valley to the West, in all those directions railroads radiated out from petersburg and from the city northward ran the one rail link that connected the capital with the heartland of the confederacy save only of course for the danville railroad into the carolina piedmont to control petersburg was virtually to control richmond itself and by the middle of june the Union Army was threatening that city. Time does not allow going into a detailed recounting of operations, but suffice it to say that the promising opportunity which Grant's strategy had brought to Union Arms on June 15th was not realized. First Beauregard and then Lee were able to throw in reinforcements to beat off successive Northern attacks And to save the city. Then on June 22nd, as he had been doing ever since early May, Grant again extended his left flank to try to get around the Confederate right. The Union Second Corps under General Burney was badly defeated at the first battle of the Weldon Railroad. With this, Grant called off the mobile warfare that he had been waging ever since he left Culpeper County and the siege of Petersburg began. Now this was not a classical siege in the European sense in which there are efforts to undermine or batter down the defenders' ramparts. Rather should we think of the siege as a great Union-entrenched camp east of Petersburg, which was useful for pinning in place the defenders of the city. And from this entrenched camp, federal forces would sally out to threaten the Confederate capital, or to try to get around the Confederate right flank to cut the railroads that were running into the city. Two of the railroads, of course, were severed as soon as the Union troops arrived east of Petersburg, and thereafter it became the northern objective to capture the Weldon Railroad and the South Side Railroad. As we have heard, the Union Army, in this hot weather, after the tremendous fighting ever since May 5th, was tired. And on June 25th, Grant wrote to Halleck, I shall try to give the Army a few days rest, which they now stand much in need of. The following day, Grant told Meade, whilst this exceedingly hot and dry weather lasts, we will give the men all the rest we can. The mobile warfare of spring gave way to the Siege of Summer. For over a month, the armies remained relatively quiescent, while Jubal Early dominated the strategic operations in Virginia by his threats against the Confederate capital. But beginning in late July, Grant launched a series of seven offensives against the Confederate position. In August, he managed to cut the Weldon Railroad. In September, he punched through the squirrel level line and reached almost to the Boynton Plank Road. And at the same time, he threw Richmond itself into the most clear and present danger of capture by a major army which could have held the city. The most clear and present danger that Richmond ever faced up to the day of her downfall. And although the breakthrough at Fort Harrison did not net Richmond itself, it did establish an entire army sector north of the James, which thereafter required the Confederates to divert manpower which they could not afford to the immediate protection of their capital. Then in February, Grant extended his left flank as far as Hatcher's run. And finally, in April, He broke through the outer Confederate defenses of Petersburg, cut the last railroad, reached the Upper Appomattox, and doomed Petersburg, doomed the defenses of the James, doomed Richmond itself. Thereafter, Lee began a last desperate flight down the Danville Railroad towards North Carolina. But North Carolina was too far away. Grant's army was in too sound a strategic position. The once mighty Army of Northern Virginia had been too fatally crippled throughout the course of Petersburg for it to get away. Just one week to the day after the breakthrough at Petersburg came Appomattox. That Petersburg campaign had been the campaign of U.S. Grant, and I'd like to share with you a few thoughts on his generalship in this, his final great Civil War campaign. His goal continued to be to defeat the Confederacy, but by the time he reached Prince George in Dinwiddie County, The confederate army was no longer his immediate objective richmond and petersburg had now become his objectives not because of some abstract dogma of strategy but because of the very legitimate military objectives that those two cities represented petersburg as the communication center richmond as the center of war industry, as the seat of government, and as the symbol of Confederate aspirations to independence. And also, because he realized that if he could take those two cities, he would force the Army of Northern Virginia back into the open field where it would again become his target. How did he hope to accomplish these objectives. Well, it was not through the big battle. As we know, many Civil War commanders went into the war of 1861, admiring the great Napoleon, who after all was the foremost general of the first half of the 19th century, and one of the most outstanding commanders in all of military history. And many of these American generals Even thought that they could emulate Napoleon, who in a single battle like Marengo or Austerlitz or Jena Auerstadt had overthrown an enemy state, destroyed its army, and crushed its will to war. But for so many reasons, the more heavily wooded character of North America, the change in shoulder weapons, just as recently as the decade of the 1850s, even after the Mexican War experience, not to mention the relative disparity of ability between Napoleon and most Civil War commanders. No no Civil War general was able to accomplish a Napoleonic victory. George Thomas came closest to it at Nashville, but that was so late in the war. Grant, however, had never succumbed to this effort to emulate Napoleon. But I would suggest that we, as we think about Grant at Petersburg, consider what we have heard all day today. Thomas told us how as early as November of 1861, Grant went down and attacked the Confederates at Belmont. And Wiley has pointed out how on the second day at Shiloh, Grant passed over to the offensive and attacked the Confederates. And Ed has told us how in both a strategic and a tactical sense, Grant attacked the Southerners in the Vicksburg campaign. And Gordon has indicated how Grant attacked the Confederates in order to raise the siege of Chattanooga. (coughs) Attack, 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 attack. It was through the attack that Grant had won these victories. It was through the attack that Grant had been promoted to general-in-chief with three stars on his shoulders. It was through the attack Grant had won the right to come east and face R.E. Lee. So it should not surprise us then that this style of warfare which had served him well in the west was an approach that he would continue to practice once he came east. But the east was not the west, and R.E. Lee is not John B. Floyd. (laughs) <laughs> and it, it follows as a corollary That the Army of Northern Virginia Is not the garrison of Fort Donaldson Things were different And in a bloody and painful way As Bob has so well stated From May 5th Through the first attacks on Petersburg Ending on June 18th Grant learned this lesson Grant could learn from experience. We all know how he did it in the Vicksburg Campaign. Ed has described that. He learned again from experience in the Spring Campaign in Virginia. And by the time his army reached Petersburg, Grant passed over to a war of attrition. Now, that term is often applied to his generalship, But I would suggest that it is frequently misapplied. Cold Harbor is not characteristic of Grant. It is an aberration. Grant was not the modern Xerxes who threw his men to their deaths by the thousands in the pass of Thermopylae in order to inflict minimal losses on the enemy. My desire grant wrote Meade on june 21st as the armies are now around petersburg is that petersburg be enveloped as far as possible without attacking fortifications three weeks later he stressed to that officer i would not permit any attack against the enemy in an entrenched position again on october 2nd the Lieutenant General directed the Pennsylvanian to make no attack against defended fortifications. The Illinoisan gave Ben Butler the same guidance on October 24th. I do not want any attack made by you against entrenched and defended positions. Let it be distinctly understood by Corps commanders, that there is to be no attack made against defended, entrenched positions. Grant's views had not changed by February 6th, when he wrote to Meade, I would not recommend making any attacks against entrenched lines. As late as March 3rd, the General-in-Chief informed the Commander of the Army of the Potomac Whilst the enemy holds nearly all his force for the defense of Richmond and Petersburg, the object to be gained by attacking entrenchments is not worth the risk. Not only in words, but in practice. One of the dominant themes of Grant's generalship at Petersburg is his aversion to attacking fortifications. What then was Grant's War of Attrition? He waged it in the broader grand tactical, strategic, and grand strategic domains, where he would fix the Confederates in place. He would inexorably eat away at their territory and their lines of communication. He would wear them down, physically and psychologically and he would simply use battles first as the means for achieving these results and then as the method for pushing the crippled foe over the brink. As early as September 30th Grant informed Meade I can't help believing that the enemy are prepared to leave Petersburg if forced a little and he was right. They were prepared to leave, but the Yankees didn't force hard enough, and Lee forced back even harder, and the Southerners were able to hold on. But six months later, the time had arrived, and Grant could tell Sheridan, I now feel like ending the matter if it is possible to do so before going back. This on the 29th of March of 1865. What was the nature of the maneuvers and battles which had brought Grant to that point of imminent success? Well, I've already indicated it was not the big battle, nor was it yet the series of grand strategic sweeps that just characterized Sherman's operations in Georgia and the Carolinas. Operations, by the way, which, of course, is so well facilitated by the cooperation <laughs> afforded by the retreating Confederate army, or better yet, the absence of any credible Confederate resistance whatsoever. But in the presence of a powerful foe as represented by Lee and the Army of Northern Virginia. Such bold maneuvers were simply not practical. Rather did Grant fight a series of two-pronged strikes, A major first blow intended to achieve an important objective, but if that objective could not be accomplished, at the very least it would draw off so many butternut forces that the second prong could break through somewhere else. And from the initial operations in late July, the first battle of Deep Bottom and the Burnside Mine, these of operations, Two-Pronged Strikes characterized what he did for the rest of the summer and the autumn. This approach was epitomized in his message to Meade on the night of September 30th. We must be greatly superior to the enemy in numbers, and by working around at each end, we will find where the enemy's weak point is. And actually, in a number of these battles, in the grand tactical sense, Grant did manage to turn both Confederate flanks. He evolved the timing of these approaches towards simultaneous strikes. The ones in July were almost completely sequential. The ones in August, the first attack was fizzling out when the second attack was launched. By the time of the September battles on which I have written, the Army of the James, the first strike, was still heavily engaged in the second day of fighting around Fort Harrison when the Army of the Potomac went into action. And by October 27th, both Butler and Meade struck simultaneously. The complete failure of that operation, by the way, led Grant to again learn from experience and to change over from the two-pronged strike to a massive first strike with his left wing. And it was that first strike which carried him to Hatcher's Run in February. It was that first strike which broke through with a great victories, somewhat at Five Forks, but even more so at April 2nd, when he reached the Boyton plank Road and cut the final Confederate supply lines. Grant's approach was what he was, not brilliant, but effective. In his outlook, Grant showed great flexibility of method, great fixity of purpose. He remained committed to attacking in the strategic sense. And all the while, he felt optimism and self-confidence. Now, I'm not talking about the arrogance of Phil Sheridan or the boastfulness of fighting Joe Hooker with his finest army on the planet or the braggadocio of the likes of a George Custer, but rather a calm, implicit belief in his ability to do the job. In his official exercise of command, that trait largely remained implicit. But in his letters to his wife, he sometimes gave voice to it. Hardly had the siege begun before he wrote her on June 22nd. Our work progresses here slowly, but I feel will progress securely until Richmond finally falls. The task is a big one and has to be performed by someone. Nearly halfway through the siege, his confidence remained. I have been terribly embarrassed for several days with the movements and demonstrations of the enemy in the West, he confided to her on October 12th. But here I feel easy. And two days later, he explained his assurance about his own front. Time is passing, and Richmond is still not ours. I think it cannot long before the tug will come which, if it does not secure the prize, will put us where the end will be in sight. Such expectations proved premature, however, as his next offensive went down to total defeat on October 27th. Yet such setbacks left him undaunted. The very day that his strike forces recoiled into his work, He penned a few lines home. I will work this thing out all right. It is about the last of the Confederacy, however, when Richmond is gone, and knowing this, they will hold on desperately. He too would hold on, even more desperately. This quality so crucial to his generalship, he articulated most clearly in a Christmas Eve letter to Julia, I know how much there is dependent on me and will prove myself equal to the task. I believe determination can do a great deal to sustain one, and I have that quality certainly to its fullest extent. With these characteristics and these approaches, how did Grant exercise command? Well, in effect, he was what today we would call, certainly what Ed in his World War II analogies would call, an army group commander, a man who coordinated the Army of the Potomac and the Army of the James. That meant that he was essentially a strategist and not a tactician. He would set the objectives initiate the operations, often go to the front to observe how matters were progressing, occasionally, very occasionally, to prod a hesitant subordinate. But essentially, he would let responsible subordinates exercise the responsibility of their offices. That was the command style of the mid-19th century. And it makes no more sense to expect Grant or Lee or any other Civil War commander to behave like John J. Pershing or Lazare Carnot in the French Revolution than it does to expect them to behave like Attila the Hun. The style of warfare and the style of command was what it was. If you had men that you entrusted to be your subordinates, you entrusted them with the responsibility to exercise the duties of their respective offices. And in consequence of that, Grant would allow his army commanders to choose their own troops and set the tactical plans for carrying out and achieving his objectives. And he would often defer to subordinates in whom he reposed confidence. For instance, General Meade was able to prolong the Battle of Poplar Spring Church a whole day beyond when Grant wanted to end it because Grant had sufficient faith in his frontline commander Meade to defer to Meade's judgment as a leader of men Grant was attentive not magnetic his men were not devoted to him they did not adore him they rarely even cheered him when he rode past even so He was devoted to his men. He was sensitive. Now use that word advisedly. Not just interested, not even concerned, but actually sensitive to their protection. He was unwilling, I insist, unwilling to sacrifice them with attacks on defended fortifications. He was insistent on protecting the rights of prisoners of war including black prisoners of war. He was reluctant to use defenseless prisoners as hostages, and he saw to it that his men were well supplied. Grant, of course, had supplies in profusion. He had the men in preponderance. At times, critics have almost seemed to blame Grant for such preponderance, to belittle his success because it derived from strength. Now that's nonsense. War is not sport. War is strength. It's use and it's application. Throughout history, great captains have achieved success by applying and bringing superior strength to bear at the point of decision. And Grant was such a captain. It is to his credit that he recognized strength and used it. Anyone who thinks that his was an easy task should recall that all his predecessors in the East had also enjoyed superiority of manpower and materiel, and yet had failed to achieve anything better than strategic stalemate, and often came to grief with downright failure. Perhaps Grant's greatest accomplishment was to convert these potential advantages into positive achievements. How did he do it? To begin with, he concerted his forces. As General-in-Chief, he concerted the armed might of the Union. As Theater Commander, he concerted all the forces in the East. And as Army Group Commander, He concerted the Army of the Potomac and the Army of the James, focused directly against Petersburg and Richmond. He drew to himself more troops from backwater areas like the garrison of Washington or the Middle Department in Maryland and Delaware, from the lower Atlantic coast and as far away as the Gulf Coast, from northern depots and under the call for troops that went out in the late summer of 64. He often would not wait for new regiments to form in the North. He would bring the new men forward, a battalion, or even a company at a time, and let these new regiments come together right at the front. Most crucially of all, he brought back to himself many of the troops from Phil Sheridan's victorious Army of the Shenandoah. And yet, all the while, Grant was not important. We do not the likes of McClellan constantly demanding, I must have Franklin's division, I must have McCall's division, I must have Shield's division, I must have another 20,000 men. Nor yet is this Rosecrans who cannot possibly advance until he has more cavalry and more cavalry and more horses for his cavalry and more saddles for his horses. Grant would explain why he needed men. He would ask. For men he would not demand. This approach emerges clearly from a letter he wrote directly to the President on July 19, 1864, to recommend a call for 300,000 new men. After explaining the many benefits of such reinforcements, Grant summarized the military advantage. The greater number of men we have, the shorter and less sanguinary will be the war. Just as significantly from the perspective of harmonious command relations, Grant made clear in that letter that he was only asking. I give this entirely as my view and not in any spirit of dictation, always holding myself in readiness to use the material given me to the best advantage I know how. This close and effective working relationship between General-in-Chief and Commander-in-Chief was another crucial element that enabled Grant to put the North's potential advantages to good use. The soldier realized that the national enemy lay in Richmond, not in Washington. Unlike so many able American generals before and after the 1860s, as well as during the Civil War, Grant was not at war with his own government. By virtue of his great accomplishments in the West, Grant had already earned the President's trust even before they met. Once East, Grant kept that trust. Just as importantly, in terms of the daily functioning of his forces, he maintained effective working relations with most of his subordinates in the East. There had been, as we know, great discord among the officers of the Army of the Potomac earlier in the war, and Gordon has told us about how some of this spilled over to Tennessee when Hooker's force went west. Grant brought in many of his own men like Ord, Sheridan, Rollins, Wilson, Baldy Smith, but he did not purge the Eastern Army, which had already been reorganized before he established his headquarters with it. To the contrary, he recognized and used to good advantage the generals who had long been the glory of the Army of the Potomac, men like Hancock, Gibbon, Burney, Griffin, Ayers, and David Gregg. Grant tried to work well with Meade in an admittedly sensitive relationship. In January of 1865, the Illinoisan, in the course of exerting particular effort to assure Senate confirmation of the Army Commander's Commission as Major General of Regulars, wrote Elihu Washburn that General Meade is one of our truest and ablest officers. I defy anyone to name a commander who could do more than he has done with the same chances." And in a much different sort of relationship, Grant put up with Ben Butler, his ranking subordinate, throughout the course of 1864 until the powder boat fiasco blew up not Fort Fisher but the career of that quintessential political general. And just as Grant operated to keep himself in manpower and in command power, he maneuvered to also maintain himself in sound logistical supply. Grant understood that the North's resources did little good if they could not reach the troops, as Weir, Pope, Rosecrans, and Hunter had already found out to their grief. Grant realized that logistics necessarily undergirded both strategy and tactics, an elementary proposition, but one which some would-be strategists of the Civil War, such as Beauregard and Fremont, often ignored. And thus it was that this quartermaster officer from the Mexican War, operated by his strategic left flank, So as always to remain in supply up the great tidal rivers of Virginia, he did not tie himself to the Orange and Alexandria Railroad, which had proved to be the undoing of both Pope and Meade, but rather maneuvered over beginning in May of 64 so that he could supply himself from the Potomac, the Rappahannock, the York Pamunkey, and by the time of the Petersburg campaign, the mighty James itself an artery which the Confederates could never hope to sever. Grant reached the James and beyond, moreover, not just by maneuvering, but by controlling the course of operations. From the time that first he moved from Culpeper County Until he reached Appomattox Courthouse, save only for a few weeks in mid-July when the butternuts threatened Washington, Grant held and sustained the initiative. When, where, how, why, and whether to attack were decisions made by Grant, not by Lee. Everything is very quiet here now, Grant told a Chicago friend on November 13th, and seems likely to remain so until I make it otherwise. Grant fixed the Southerners in place and wore them down. He remained unshaken in resolve. He did not dwell on setbacks, but constantly learned from experience the man who never turned back, never looked back. He did keep alert to events elsewhere, such as those in the Shenandoah Valley, which could bear directly upon his own force, or those in Middle Tennessee, the Trans-Mississippi, and the Gulf, which apparently needed correction, or those such as in Georgia and the Carolinas, which offered great advantage to the northern war effort. Grant was, after all, General-in-Chief of all Northern forces. By the time that the Siege of Petersburg was well underway, he saw that one of his greatest challenges was to keep the Army of Northern Virginia pinned down at Petersburg with his own army group while he used other Federal armies to eat up the rest of the Confederacy my own opinion he informed his trusted lieutenant and friend sherman on december 18, sixty four is that lee is averse to going out of virginia and if the cause of the south is lost he wants richmond to be the last place surrendered if he has such views it may be well to indulge him until we get everything else in our hands Seven weeks later, Grant told Secretary of War Stanton, I do not want to do anything to force the enemy from Richmond. I do not want to do anything to force the enemy from Richmond until Schofield carries out his program to capture Wilmington. I shall necessarily have to take the odium of apparent inactivity, but if it results, as I expect it will, in the discomfiture of Lee's army, I shall be entirely satisfied. Some odium there was, then and since, but also much satisfaction, for the discomfiture, indeed the destruction, of Lee's army did result. Through this strategy of coordinating force, and through these other means for utilizing the North's potential advantages, Grant achieved success. And yet because I have such admiration for General Grant, I do not idolize him. I readily acknowledge that he was not the perfect general any more than he was the perfect man. He encountered difficulties. He suffered from shortcomings. Some arose from his surroundings. Others were consequent on his character. As is often the case with great men, some of these weaknesses derive from his very strength. In terms of personal qualities, for instance, in his relations with his fellow officers, on the positive side we know of his intense loyalty to his friends Who were worthy of his friendship and respect. Men like Sherman, Sheridan, and Rawlins. But on the other hand, and we've already heard about some of this throughout the day today, there is his intense hatred of fellow officers whom he perceived as rivals or personal enemies. And this is not so much true of the officers in his army group against Petersburg, but even his general-in-chief even while he was waging day in and day out the siege against the Cockade City, Grant continues to carry on what would almost be described as his vendetta against Rosecrans, Gordon Granger, and George Thomas. But then again, Grant's flexibility towards new approaches and his confidence in ultimate success, valuable traits of character that they were, had the disadvantage of sometimes causing him to overlook or not fully develop opportunities which old approaches brought near to hand. He was so sure that sometime, somewhere, off there, he was going to win, that he could not see right here, right now, the opportunities immediately at hand. In his style of warfare, as Bob has Rightly pointed out, Grant suffered from his war of attrition. The Confederates suffered from it, but so did the Bluecoats. <coughs> this, of course, is the time for reenlistment, and many veteran units are not reenlisting. So, this honed tool of the Army of the Potomac would have lost a great many men had there been no fighting in Virginia whatsoever. But, of course, there was fighting. And there were heavy casualties that were suffered, and casualties are most often inflicted upon the men who are in the forefront of battle. The bravest of the sergeants, the company commanders, the regimental commanders. So there is not only a quantitative, but a qualitative loss in effectiveness in the Army of the Potomac. And it is not till the winter of 64, 65, when the replacements have had time to be seasoned, when the wounded men have convalesced and returned to duty, that the Army of the Potomac regained something of its fighting edge for the final operations in the spring of 65. Then, too, as Grant forced the secessionists to attenuate, he also attenuated his own forces. His troops in the trenches helped fix the gray coats in place grand tactically but were not available for bolder maneuver. And of course, Grant suffered from the problems common to all Yankee commanders in the East. Unfamiliarity with new ground slowed his movement. New units were often ineffective at first. We think of how the Union Army at first bull run was handicapped by its total inexperience. We think of how McClellan of Antietam suffered because he had so many new units in his ranks. Well, even as late as the autumn of 64, as these reinforcements that Grant is bringing down from the north join his army, his manpower increases, but his fighting power does not immediately increase. And perhaps the greatest handicap of all Grant faced Robert E. Lee. But this time, there was a difference. So many other federal commanders had faced Lee and promptly failed. Grant faced Lee and eventually succeeded. The great Lee. The noble Lee. The Lee who conducted his (coughs) forces with such great credit throughout the siege of Petersburg the Lee who remains so worthy of our respect today. Even against this Lee, Grant succeeded. This success was not inevitable. It came about because the Illinoisan at last found the way to accomplish it. He concerted his forces, grand strategically and strategically. He learned from experience and matured, His approaches to warfare, and he waged a war of attrition that progressively translated the North's potential advantages into positive achievements. These achievements came at last. Capture of Petersburg, capture of Richmond, capture of the Army of Northern Virginia, collapse of the Confederacy. With achievement came also a wave of understandable exultation, Aside of himself that as so often, he revealed chiefly to his wife altogether, this has been one of the greatest victories of the war. He wrote Julia on April 2nd, while Petersburg still held out for a few more hours, but while its outer works and its lines of communications were already in his hands, greatest he continued, because it is over what the rebels have always regarded as their most invincible army and one used for the defense of their capital. One of the greatest victories indeed it was, this victory of Grant at Petersburg. Thank you.
0: That was a masterful address. We know now with a high quality of work that comes out of Carlisle Barracks,